Time magazine has named Vikram Patel, psychiatrist and professor of international mental health at the school, amongst its 2015 Time 100, its annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. We spoke to Vikram, who's based at the Sangath Mental Health Research Centre, an NGO based in Goa, about being included on the list and about his career. Found out about a fortnight ago, uh, and I have to say uh, that when I first got the email, I thought it was a spam mail. And so I uh, actually uh, sent this to the school's press officer saying, I think this is a spam mail, but perhaps you might want to investigate a bit. So, so in your spam email, Vikram, you, you might... You know, you might have been awarded the Nobel Prize or, you know, some other big prize. You, you might have thrown uh, no, actually, it away. it wasn't in the spam mail. I thought it was spam. You know how you get these emails saying, you know, you've been selected uh, for, you know, to receive this or that award. Congratulations on, on being uh, in, in the Time 100. Um, have, have you seen the rest of the list? Uh, I have. I've just been looking at it today. They just announced it today. Uh, and I'm absolutely gobsmacked to be in the company of some of those, uh, those individuals. What's nice is the list includes many unknown people like me uh, who previously have been working in a field without really much recognition, uh, alongside, of course, the people who are very well known. Just looking at the list, so they've, they've divided it up into uh, five sections. And you're a, pi- you're a pioneer. And, uh, and accompanying you in, in the pioneer section is uh, actresses Emma Watson from uh, Harry Potter fame, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, have, you, have you met either of those two? <laughs> no, I actually haven't met either of them, but I wish I, I, I could. And to be perfectly honest, they're not the kind of people that people at the London School would ever encounter. And, and also some of the others. Tim Cook from Apple, Kim Kardashian, Angela Merkel, Vladimir Putin, Björk and uh, Pope Francis. So uh, in, in kind of in, interesting company there. That would be an interesting uh, dinner party, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be an interesting dinner party, but there you are. You know, I have to say, Julian, I'm not sure how people make up these lists. Uh, uh, there seems to be a certain degree of arbitrariness when you find yourself on the same list as Vladimir Putin. But uh, the, the honour is one that I take uh, with great humility and one that I think is more about the cause um, rather than the person in this particular instance. I was reading, and had your career path been slightly different, you, you may well have been included in uh, maybe the artists section. You, is this right? You, you were an actor. <laughs> well, I, I would say, I, I, yeah, I was. I used to act on the, on the theatre. Um, and I was actually, I was still quite a successful actor. I got very good reviews. This is when I was a medical student. But here's the story. When I joined Oxford, I went up for auditions. And um, unfortunately, I didn't make the cut for the play that I, I, I was auditioning for. And I was so demoralized that I actually gave up my acting career altogether after that, which in hindsight was probably a big mistake. Um, and I would never advise anyone to turn back after one failure, but I have to, I have to say at that stage, I, can't, I thought I just wasn't up to it. Well, I, I, acting's loss is uh, the world's and, and the medical world's gain. So let, let's look at your career. It's, it's, it's a really interesting journey that you've gone on, both geographically, but also in a scientific sense, that in that your initial thoughts on depression being tackled in a Western way what you initially thought that that wasn't the right way to be to be done in a developing world but but you've changed over the last 20 years so can i just wonder if you can summarize some of that some of the, the initial thinking and what led you to to change your your ideas so um, first of all, to say that when i started my work uh, i i trained uh, you know I, I, yes you're right i've had a, a fairly 
you know, unusual, as it were, global uh, uh, training in medicine and psychiatry. I trained in medicine in Mumbai, and then I did uh, uh, my further training in Oxford, and then at King's, um, at the Maudsley Hospital, where I trained in psychiatry, and then I went on to join the school in the year 2000. Um, and uh, essentially, when I was doing my PhD, I chose to do my work in Zimbabwe, and this was where I um, discovered, of course, that, you know, the concepts of depression that were used by biomedical models of uh, care in psychiatry really didn't translate that well into uh, developing country settings like Zimbabwe. But having said this, I also found that that didn't mean that the the distress that we associate with depression did not occur. Uh, and so it was possible to identify people in the clinics of uh, Zimbabwe who one would consider had depression, but we wouldn't necessarily have to apply the diagnostic label of depression to those individuals, but instead use labels that they found uh, contextually acceptable and not stigmatizing. I also found that the sorts of interventions that we might have used, say, in London, could be applied with equal effect, actually, in Zimbabwe. But in addition, uh, that in Zimbabwe, there was also um, a number of other things that people could do. For example, go to traditional healers, engage the family in different kinds of rituals, etc., that were also potentially very valuable. So I, I'd like to say today that my, my approach to mental health in the global context is an integrative one, one that adopts the most useful uh, best practices from medicine, as well as those that are contextually uh, utilized by people. Uh, and I think in, in that integrative model, one can arrive at a, a set of practices that are uh, not just very effective, but also acceptable to people in particular cultural contexts. And is that an ethos which is very much at the heart of the Sangas Centre in, in Goa? Absolutely. See, you know, Sangatha was an organization I co-founded with uh, a few other colleagues in Goa when I was unemployed. Um, there was this 18-month uh, period in my career, which I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I rarely talk about, which is when I, when I went to India, back to India in 1995 as a Wellcome Trust uh, employee, uh, on a Wellcome Trust project, rather, uh, I was working for, for the Institute of Psychiatry in South London. And uh, there was then a change in Wellcome Trust funding policies. And so I was suddenly left stranded in India without a job. Um, upon which my, uh, my mentor in the Institute, Anthony Mann, said, you know, I should just come back to Britain. I was a psychiatrist. I just joined the NHS, etc. you know. And I decided uh, really not to do that, but instead to invest my energies in starting an NGO through which I could implement uh, grassroots work. Uh, and I've never really looked back. It's been the best decision I made. And of course, Sangat has subsequently become the lead partner for the school's mental health uh, uh, research in India. Uh, and yes, its model is very much community-oriented, very much about using locally available human resources, very much about uh, uh, delivering interventions that are culturally appropriate. And um, was this an area which just hadn't been studied before or just there just wasn't the psychiatrist around to, to do the work or the, it just wasn't an important research project to do? Well, it certainly wasn't an important research project. There was very little funding for mental health research in those days. Um, uh, but what research did occur was also fairly out of uh, context to the uh, community. It, it tended to be done in hospitals. It tended to have a very strong biomedical framework. 
there was very little crosstalk with other disciplines. And I have to say, being at the school, one of the most important influences for me has been the opportunity for interdisciplinary crosstalk that you get at the school. So many of my ideas um, uh, about the kind of work that I do in mental health in India have been influenced by seeing my colleagues in other areas of public health, like HIV you know, and maternal health at the school, how they have actually addressed some of the barriers in their research in low resource settings. So I've really actually learned a lot from other colleagues in other areas of global health. And, you know, it has to be said that many of the traditional orthodox models of psychiatric research uh, in, uh, in the developing world tended to be very orthodox and very uh, biomedical uh, as opposed to uh, grounded in global health uh, and communities. Some of what you've found is that there are universal reasons why people become depressed. One of the biggest reasons is an economic uh, deprivation. Is it purely just how poor people are? Or is it about the inequality perceived in a country? In that, are there poor countries where people are generally happy, in, in quotation marks, but where the inequality level is much lower, whereas, say, in the UK or in, in the States, where we, we, we're used to kind of talking about depression now and, and, and psychiatric problems, where it's perceived that the, there's a much bigger inequality, if that makes sense. You know, it does make sense. I think the question you're asking is one of the most important ones in understanding the social determinants of depression. Um, I think poverty, both absolute and relative, um, are both very important predictors of uh, uh, the prevalence of depression in any population. Um, there's no question that people who live in absolute poverty, it's almost a no-brainer, really, if you live in conditions of extreme poverty, that you're likely to have far more stresses in your daily life. Just the stress of remaining alive is, is one that can uh, uh, wear one's mind down and lead to the sorts of symptoms we associate with depression. Uh, but equally, I think what's even more interesting is the fact that uh, if you have a country like in the OECD world, um, where there is almost no absolute poverty, but there are increasing levels of relative poverty or income inequality, there's really great work from people like Wilkinson and others, which is showing that um, the higher the levels of income inequality, the greater is the burden of mental illness in the population, showing that income inequality is bad for the whole population and not just for those who are poor. And I'm guessing that India, with a, uh, a perceived inequality quite high between the very rich and the very poor, that this is a particular problem in that country. Well, India's got a double, double barrel uh, problem. It's got not only very high rates of absolute poverty, with about a quarter or a third of the population living in absolute poverty. Uh, you know, we're talking of poverty where you aren't able to actually meet your basic needs of food every day. Um, and a, Piggybacked on that, you've got widening levels of income inequality. Um, India didn't used to be such an unequal country now as, uh, as, it, is, uh, as it was, say, 20 years ago. And I think the widening inequality is uh, certainly a matter of considerable concern uh, to um, anyone who is involved in the mental health field. And have you seen over that time the, the, the changes in mental health um, in, in, increasing? Firstly, it has to be said, I don't think we have sufficiently good longitudinal data that allows us to you know, confidently comment on this issue. And I think it's a question, it's a very important question, and you're often asked that question, you know, given the rapid social change in India, do you also see changes in the, uh, do you see any uh, you know, trends in the prevalence of mental disorders? I, I don't think one can confidently answer that question, but what one can see is certain trends, for example, suicide rates. Suicide rates in India have shown an increase in recent years, and in particular amongst young people, uh, where now the suicide rates, as we reported in a paper in The Lancet a few years ago, is amongst the highest in the world. 
Uh, and, uh, and I think social change is the most important factor that one can uh, look at as a potential reason for these high and rising rates of suicide. Are you aware of any other studies in any of the other BRIC nations which lead to the same conclusions? Well, yeah, absolutely, but in the opposite direction. I mean, I would take just suicide as an example. There is now strong evidence from China, you know, a country that India often compares itself with on a number of different levels. Um, China, about 15 years ago, had one of the highest suicide rates in the world, much higher than India. Uh, and it had um, a particularly high rates of suicide in young women in rural areas. Um, it successfully brought that suicide rate down by nearly half in just 15 years. Um, and the most, you know, the most likely explanation is the strengthening of rural livelihoods in China and the empowerment of women uh, in China during that period. And has any of the work that, that you're doing in India uh, or any of the other developing nations fed back into the Western nations? What, what can we learn? Well, I, I guess, you know, I think one of the great things about global health is the idea that you can learn from each other. There isn't a one-way flow of knowledge. And there's no question that there are certain kinds of innovations and approaches to mental health care in India and China uh, that could have great value uh, in rich countries. And I just want to pinpoint, uh, you know, pick up on two of them. The first is the fact that in both of these countries, people with mental health problems and disabilities actually play a number of different roles within their families and communities that that are quite productive and rewarding, and this is a very important part of recovery. Um, and I think many of those roles have become invisible or absent in highly industrialized societies like Britain. Uh, and so one may begin to examine whether there may be a way to bring back these larger roles um, uh, that have been, as it were, automated and, 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 uh, and, and removed from uh, the potential for human beings to be involved with. Um, and the second important innovation is, again, at the human resource level, is where ordinary people in the communities can play an active role uh, in, as frontline workers in providing mental health care. And certainly in India, this is a, this is a, an, a very good example of how uh, some of the barriers that we face in addressing the shortage of um, uh, mental health specialists is being, uh, is being tackled by using ordinary people, community health workers, to deliver uh, psychological and social interventions. Do you feel more positive now about the state of uh, mental health in, in developing countries and, and spe specifically India than you did when you first started on this uh, journey? Absolutely. I mean, you know, just from my own personal experience, 20 years ago, if I ever told anyone at a family dinner function that I was a psychiatrist, they'd usually walk away or, you know, laugh in a very uncomfortable way, you know, giggle uncomfortably, you know, that maybe I was analyzing them. That was usually the remark I got. Today, you know, I can see a sea change in attitudes. You know, people often respond when I say I'm a psychiatrist, say, oh, that's so interesting. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, there's so many issues I want to talk to you about, about what's happening in society, etc. So if that's one measure, uh, the destigmatization of mental health and mental illness um, uh, and a greater awareness about these issues, if that's one measure of change, um, then I'm very pleased to see that. And I think that will translate ultimately into a more commitment from governments uh, uh, to uh, really invest in mental health human resources. And I think this particular recognition is really a recognition for the, you know, the really the tireless efforts of thousands of people around the world, uh, from people suffering from mental health problems, their families and caregivers, uh, through to, you know, grassroots activists and workers and researchers like myself, uh, to really raise the profile of mental health as a public health issue within low-resource countries. And, uh, you know, I, I would really want this particular honor to be seen in that context.